Hello. Welcome back to the Hillbilly Oracle podcast. My name is Mars Corbeau. Today I wanted to talk about trans and queer spirituality, which was a panel I recently gave at the Techno Coven Convention, which was a Discord coordinated convention. I got a lot of requests to make an actual podcast out of the episode so that more people could engage with what I was talking about there. I'm recording this one during the day, so there may be more noise in the background, but I'm going to give it my best shot just so that I can get these resources out there for folks. So when we talk about trans and queer spirituality, I think it's really important to understand what your goal is as far as integrating a trans or a queer identity into your spirituality, because that's going to make a big difference. Some people are interested in going really deep with it, and some people are not interested in incorporating it in their practice at all. So engage with these materials as much as you want to. There's no pressure to do the deep work if you don't want to do the deep work or to include the more surface level stuff if you don't want to include the surface level stuff. So that is my disclaimer going into this. I think that the most important work someone can do is to go over their basic tenets. So when I say basic tenets, I mean kind of the foundational beliefs of their spiritual path. Because a lot of neo-pagan traditions are light on basic tenets and big on ritual. And a lot of the people I talk to are kind of attracted to the regalia involved and don't necessarily understand the deeper meaning involved. So a lot of people skip exploring just those foundational beliefs of their spirituality, which I think makes it weaker and it makes it harder to sustain over the long term it can really impact whether it feels deep and we identify with it, say, 10 years from now. It's extra important for queer and trans folks because our concerns and perspectives are often left out of basic of ten- basic tenets of faith anyways. So it's something that's really left up to us and the handful of people who are writing about this kind of stuff. So it's not something we can just expect to have done for us and we have to do that individual work to integrate that into our practice. I know a lot of folks, especially queer and trans folks, are put off from doing this because it comes across as really dogmatic and it reminds them of negative childhood experiences with religion, which I really relate to. But it's the core of a spirituality and it's what it allows it to stand up to the test of time. And it also is a way for us to take back our power in these situations. We weren't included before, or we were even actually alienated in some paths before. And when we do this basic tenant work and we create queer and trans cosmologies and and understand where we exist in the universe, we're empowering ourselves. So it's kind of a, a really good, it's almost a shadow work exercise in a way to reclaim these foundational beliefs of a spirituality. So some of the questions that I really encourage people to ask are, what does my spiritual path believe about how the universe was created? What does my spiritual path believe about how the universe will end or if it'll end? This is kind of the cosmology aspect. It's like, what is the nature of our universe as it was and as it will be? And also as it currently is. And this helps us kind of like 
the way I put it is we almost like triangulate ourselves from like the beginning, the end and the present. And then we can kind of figure out where we are in the grand scheme of things. And it connects us to a past we can barely comprehend and a future we can barely comprehend. Another question is, what does my spiritual path belief happens to us after we die? Or does anything happen to us after we die? And this is related to the one after it too, which is what does my spiritual path believe is a good life? This is the stuff that really makes up your day-to-day actions, that kind of sets the compass for your morality or just for how you prioritize and make decisions. It's really important to understand what you want to spend your time doing while you're alive and how that will connect to things after you pass away. Whether you believe that you get reincarnated, whether you go to a different plane, or whether nothing at all happens and the substance of our bodies becomes food for the earth. Whatever you believe about that process will impact how you think you should be living your life now. And the more in line you can live with those principles, the more satisfied you're going to be on the long term. The last kind of section is about hardship. It's what does my spiritual path believe about hardship? What meaning does it assign it? Why do we experience it? And what is the best response to it? This is what allows spirituality to be a comfort, in my opinion. It's what allows me to lean on it as a pillar when I'm really going through some shit. So in, for instance, like I have had people in my family very sick Within the last year, I've had some real upheaval in my personal life. Like this set of of ideas is what allows me to find a deep level of comfort in my spirituality. And it's what keeps it from being kind of like a, for lack of a better term, like a, uh, I I always say like like I've been cosplaying my religion or like it's a, a lifestyle brand sort of thing. Like it's what allows it to be really deep rather than this thing that I wear. Understanding how my path interacts with hardship has been so key to me maintaining a practice for 12 years. I was really unsure when I first started my pagan journey whether I would be pagan after a year or two, and here I am 12 years later, and the reason is it gives me so much substantial comfort when I really need it. So I really recommend thinking about the nature of hardship in your spiritual path. I also think it's really worth thinking about where your queerness or your transness place you in relation to other people in the universe, according to your spirituality, because that's kind of what allows you to center to a degree your queerness and your transness. I can't answer that for you, but I have found that question to be the one of the most fruitful for understanding what role my sexuality and my gender play in my practice. Moving on, the next section I want to talk about is representation. So one of the key things that you'll find as you go through your pagan journey is trying to work with entities that can relate to you or that that you resonate with in some capacity. So I really recommend taking stock of your path and asking yourself, where is your queerness or your transness represented? Do you work with trans or queer deities? Do you work with trans or queer spirits of the human dead? Just look for the queerness and the transness in your practice as it stands. 
Some people will have a lot naturally, and some people will have next to none and not really know where to start. So I want to go over a couple options for representation here. I really recommend everybody at some point at least try, especially trans folks, but definitely queer folks too, try to contact queer and trans ancestors. Um, I had a lot of trouble doing ancestor work with my personal bloodline and I'm still working on it, but I've had a lot better luck contacting transestors or ancestors, gay ancestors as well. Uh, maintaining an altar to them, giving them offerings. It's really moving and it really affirms me because it reminds me like someday I will be a transestor. Someday I will be taking care of people who are trans after I've passed on as well. You don't necessarily need to know their names. Uh, it's If you know some names, great. If you don't, that's totally fine. Putting the call out, they will usually respond in some way. Most resources for ancestor work are really going to help you out here. And, and I can't do a whole podcast on ancestor work yet, but go find those resources and understand that instead of contacting a bloodline, you're contacting this thread of family that's related to transness or queerness. And we as trans and queer people have a long history of creating our own families. So understand that that's kind of what you're trying to connect to rather than save the bloodline. But a lot of the resources will work very well for that too. Another concept that I see getting kind of more traction is the idea of the greater dead. Um, I'm not sure how many people use this particular term. I think there's another one, but I can't remember it for the life of me. So I use the term greater dead. The greater dead are people who've attained fame for specific skills and talents in life and who continue to guide and assist people with it after their death. Uh, the most common example of this that I have seen uh, is that Freddie Mercury is venerated by some queer people. Uh, there's been some debate over the merits of venerating, say, David Bowie in a similar way. Uh, the idea is essentially, okay, this person was queer and had these talents in life, so maybe they can give me assistance after they passed away. The main people I see doing this kind of work, especially around, say, Freddie Mercury, are people who are performers who put themselves out there and who want to attain a similar level of skill. So it often is kind of based around skill, at least in my experience so far. Um, with greater dead, we don't have a canon of people who we know want to continue work with folks after they've passed on. So if you're going to try to contact any particular person, really be respectful uh, don't assume that you're going to get a response. And if you're not getting a response, don't push. So that's all I say there. Just do not assume you have a right to contact these people. Give it a shot. And if you don't get anything, don't worry about it. If you are interested in saints, whether you're a Christiopagan or a saint venerating pagan of some kind, there are a lot of materials out there that go over the arguments for certain saints being queer or being trans. And there's a surprising number of them. I've only recently kind of got into saint veneration and I'm still learning myself, so I don't have any expertise to really give here. But some ones to check out might be St. Aldred, who is said to be very likely gay um, and is even the patron saint of some gay Christian groups. I think like the, the gay Episcopalian group has his name. Um, St. Joan of Arc, 
many people debate whether her cross-dressing was proof of queerness or transness, but you just can't really deny that a lot of queer women or, or non-binary people really resonate with her story, especially the fact, especially the fact that she was willing to be put to death in order to wear the clothing that made her feel more comfortable. And again, there's historical complexities around that, but there, there's a resonant story there for a lot of folks. There's also St. Marinos, who was an AFAB person who disguised himself as a man, entered a monastery. Um, his uh, assigned at birth gender was assi- was found out after he passed away. Um, and there were miracles associated with his death. So he was, he was made a saint. Uh, at one point, he was cast out of the monastery because a woman claimed that he had gotten her pregnant and he at no point revealed that that was not something he was capable of doing and continued to live as a man, even after he'd been cast out. And eventually he was brought back to the monastery and was able to continue living as a monk. So that that's why a lot of people have a pretty good case for him being what we might consider today a trans man. So there's lots of saints, and I really recommend going out and, and checking that out, especially if you have a Christio-Pagan background, um, because it's one nice way to integrate it that's not so far outside of what you're maybe already used to. But even if you're not, the the saints have a long history of, of having a folk practice involved with them. So if you're interested at all, I highly recommend you go read more about them. Another framework that I really recommend for representation is one that I've been writing a lot about because I just, I find it really resonant, is the divine genders framework. Um, I first encountered this idea when Delphin of the Queer Fant wrote a couple posts on the divine androgen and the divine chaosin, which is kind of like the divine agender. And they wrote very eloquently about the case of including those as divine genders the way that we do, say, divine masculine or divine feminine. So I've personally been trying to flesh out what that practice could look like and writing about it on my blog. So if you're interested, check it out. But it's just a fantastic way to remember that there are mysteries associated with being, say, between or outside of the canon of genders. So I have some writings on kind of uh, divine gender cosmology and I have some stuff that either will be out or is coming out. I can't remember by the time this episode is going to be released about like a divine gender rosary prayer and some holidays and rituals and, and stuff associated with that. So keep an eye out for that. It's a really interesting framework to check out if you haven't already. When I first gave this panel, someone asked a really good question, and I wanted to cover it here. They asked me, how do you feel about people assigning modern sexualities or genders to ancient deities? And I've had a bit more time to think on it than when I first responded. And I think it depends on what tradition of thought that you're coming from. So Reconstructionists or historically inclined folks just generally, generally will want to make those calls based on a lot of research and they may refrain from using modern terms at all so that it's more respectful of the context in which those deities existed. Soft soft polytheists, my apologies, uh, and other traditions may prefer to use modern terms because they're more interested in being able to connect 
with those deities. So those are two very different lines of thought, and, and they're both valid in my opinion. There's a bit of a danger, though, when those groups are talking to each other without recognizing the tradition of thought that the other is engaged with. So if you're going to go down that road of assigning a modern sexuality or gender to a deity in the past, just understand that you may run into folks who who don't share that perspective and it's because they have their own tradition that they're working with. This is partially why two different groups may come up with very different takes on the same deity because I've seen a lot of deities get assigned different sexualities and genders. An example I think of is, is the fact that I've seen reconstructionists more likely uh, reconstruction my words today. Reconstructionists are more likely to characterize say Artemis as a lesbian or within a specific role to ancient or archaic Greece than, than to do anything else. Like that's the most common things I've seen ascribed to her. But I've seen contemporary soft polytheists assign her as asexual and aromantic. And I see the evidence for both. I see the case for both. I don't really think there's a right answer, but I think it should really be based on this core of a respectful relationship with that deity and a deep respect for how they how they interact with the world. Um, what labels you choose and how you resonate with them is a lot less important to me. So as long as you are being very respectful and of the deity and you're respectful of other traditions, I say experience them on the level that you experience them and use the labels that you feel most comfortable with. One last note on representation is I really think there's a lot to be said for incorporating queer and trans um, symbols into rituals. So one example of that is on the Trans Day of Remembrance, there's a lot of us who do ritual work around that. And I have used an altar cloth of the trans flag the last couple of years that I've done that. I've also used queer iconography for candles or for artwork or for sigils, if you do any sigil magic. So I really recommend just looking at what imagery, what queer and trans imagery has powerful meaning to you and beginning to explore that in your practice as well. Our last little chunk here is going to be on magic systems and the sexuality and gender problem. So without getting into the whole history of magic, uh, many of the magic systems that underwent a revival or were invented in the 20th century that people encounter, especially when they're first getting into witchcraft, they tend to have either a fertility core or an ecstasy core. So a fertility core is a tradition like historical Wicca, like modern Wicca has less of this emphasis, but historically it had a very strong fertility core. Uh, this core uses a lot of reproductive imagery and it can be kind of alienating to queer folks and trans folks, especially, it might not be as meaningful because that of that emphasis on fertility as a way of doing magic. There's also the ecstasy core. Often, though not always, it can focus on ecstasy of sex. And that can alienate folks who are who are asexual. So just understanding that some of these cores of magical traditions may not be for you. And that's fine. Or they may be for you, but you have to navigate them differently as someone who isn't engaging with them uh, from a heterosexual perspective. 
Some lodge magic traditions have highly gendered systems or highly gendered correspondences. Some grimoire traditions of magic include gendered correspondences. And there again, it's up to you to navigate that on your terms. Either include more genders in your correspondences or but understand you're going to be testing them on your own too. You can't just superimpose them and think that it works. You got to test those out. Um, but if you choose to engage with them, just make sure you are thoughtful about it because you don't want to have a practice that is continually alienating you or even making you dysphoric. Um, so you want to make sure you're thinking through those processes as you take on this information. For those who don't want to participate in those forms of magic, I really recommend chaos magic above all because it has a really firm foundation of magical theory and magical practice that isn't necessarily inherently gendered. A lot of people are put off by chaos magic, but I really recommend trying to find people who are writing about it in a way that is thoughtful and not alienating. Um, Oven Ready Magic by, I am blanking on his name, is a really good resource. If you can stand a bit of strangeness, the, the Psychonauts Guide is pretty good. By, I, I'm, also, I'm forgetting all the authors today. But I also really recommend checking out the original texts are related to Chaos Magic just to see how the system has evolved so you can see what parts kind of need to stay the same in order to be effective and what parts can be changed. And like the original texts are, are Libernal, Psychonaut, things along those lines. If you Google, you can find the, the text that I'm talking about. But starting with some of the original texts and then looking at some of the more modern texts or vice versa, I think it's really helpful because you can find those things that just shouldn't be changed. If you are a fan of astrology, you might enjoy astrological magic. My warning with astrological magic is it is pretty intense. It's very effective, very, very effective from what I've been able to do of it so far. But it takes a fair bit of studying to do well. Um, I would start with understanding planetary hours, planetary days, things along those lines. Start by making planetary petitions. Uh, learn about a little bit about planetary squares and sigils along those lines. And then start working to understand how uh, magical elections are selected. But I really like astrological magic. And it is less gendered at the very least. Look for ceremonial magic or grimoire magic that doesn't necessarily rely on gendered components. They're out there. So if you're reading one grimoire and you're like, okay, this is pretty gendered or this is pretty cishet, um, just keep exploring. There are those grimoires out there that don't rely as much on that for sure. And above all, with all of this information, magic or otherwise, I just really encourage you to take what works and leave the rest. And I'm talking on a deeper level. I'm not saying take the shiny stuff you like and leave the substantial stuff you don't like. I'm talking on that substantial level. Take the substantial stuff that works, that really has a meaningful practice to it, and leave the stuff that makes you dysphoric or that, you know, triggers you because of experiences you've had of, you know, maybe harassment around being queer. So just understand that as trans and queer people, we have to navigate these things more thoughtfully than, say, 
the average person or would. It's more complex for us. There's more trauma involved in trying to navigate these things. But it actually can be an opportunity to engage with this stuff on a much deeper level than folks are generally going to in their lives. So for as hard as this work can be to incorporate our trans and our queer experiences into our practice, understand that it is this beautiful experience as well. So that's all I really have to say about that. If you have any questions, you can find me at hillbillyoracle.tumblr.com and hillbillyoracle on Instagram. Feel free to ask me questions. I'd love to follow up on any of this. And I hope this was helpful. I hope you look at your practice and find a way to integrate who you really are into what you're doing. So all the best. <laughs>